What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guests are developer Tommy Craig and architect Rick Cook. Tommy is the Senior Managing Director and the co-head of the New York office of Heinz, as well as the head of the Boston office. Uh, Heinz is an international developer, investor, and manager of real estate with nearly 5,000 employees worldwide. The, uh, he has been with the firm since 1982, and he is also on the board of the Urban Design Forum and the Phipps Houses, a nonprofit affordable housing developer. Previously, he taught at Columbia Business School, and in fact, uh, he was teaching there when I was a student at business school. Uh, Tommy is a graduate of Columbia Business School and the University of North Carolina, go Tar Heels. Uh, so uh, Rick is a founding partner at Cook Fox, the New York City-based design firm he started in 2003 with Bob Fox. Their work focuses on office, residential, interiors, and cultural projects, and how the natural environment can intertwine with the built environment. Prior to Cook Fox, he founded and ran his own firm, uh, Richard Cook & Associates, for 14 years. Uh, for his work, he has received awards from the Preservation League of New York, the Congress of New Urbanism, and the Boston Society of Architects. Rick is a graduate of Syracuse University. We'll be talking about the 555 Greenwich and 345 Hudson Project in New York City, which Hudson Square Properties is developing. That's a joint venture of Trinity Church Wall Street, Norges Bank Investment Bank, and Heinz. And that is a project that Cook Fox is designing. More broadly, we will talk about the beginnings of the modern building sustainability movement with these guys who are the OGs of green. So thank you so much for being here with us, both Tommy and Rick. Thank you, Adam. Absolutely. So... Four years is the median tenure for workers in the United States when that was last calculated by the U.S. government. In contrast, uh, Tommy, you have been at your current role at Heinz for 40 years this year. And in fact, it's the only job that you've ever had. Rick, you have been running Cook Fox for 19 years. 
In previous interviews, you both have talked about the sense of purpose in your work as the grounding reason for staying where you are. So I want to hear more about that. Let's start with Rick. Well, I think that feeling a sense of purpose in your work is incredibly important. There's even emotional language around it. I I was taught as a kid growing up, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that component of a passion and an emotional connection to the work, a mission focus, a purpose-driven focus in the work is incredibly important for longevity. So Gerald Hines uh, was the founder of Hines and Bob Fox is the other founder of Cook Fox and both are titans of New York real estate. Um, I have an intuition that they strongly influence both of you and the arcs of your careers. Uh, Tommy, uh, you use the expression humble confidence to describe Gerald, for example. What impact did he have on your career development? Yeah, and you're going to get a kick out of this. Rick and I will use different words to say the same thing. You know, I think, you know, as a developer, you know, what I've come to understand about our work, particularly somebody like Rick, is, you know, Mm -hmm. you infuse really is part of the process, you know, of creating any project. And, you know, but with leaving a little bit of yourself in the project, I think they would be very different. And I don't mean that to sound egotistical. We're really there representing our firms and our teams, and we're just giving voice, you know, to all the first project I worked Mm -hmm. on at 31 West 52nd Street, which was, you know, one of two buildings we did in the early 80s. The other was the Lipstick Building, both on 53rd Street. Rick intersected with that project with the American Crafts Mm -hmm. Museum. And, you know, Jerry was somebody that liked to think at the project level, but he was an incredibly kind person. Um, And I can't tell you that he's kind to me. And none of us are perfect. I'm certainly not. But I do think that, you know, he Mm -hmm. said, you know, most of what Jerry said I think resonated because of his understated style with the way he said it. He pulled out the sliding rule, the sliding rule when he was really intent on making a point. Mm-hmm. So, so as I said, Jerry was a mechanical engineer from Purdue. And, and even as desktop computing was becoming prevalent, if Jerry wanted to convey um, a degree of certitude, about a calculation, he would pull out a slide rule in front of our investors, you know, as a confirmatory gesture, just to make a point that they were going to get an adequate yield on their investment. And he did it with sincerity, by the way. And then, uh, Rick, for you, Bob is a partner emeritus at Cook Fox now. How often do you interact with him and what impact has he had on your personal growth as an architect? Uh, We stay in touch. And still have a common interest on the things that green up uh, our city and our Mm -hmm. country. So we stay in touch. In fact, uh, he was my mentor. My first job out of school, he was my mentor, taught me how to think through doing a skyscraper. And then I founded my own firm. And then 14 years later, Bob joined us. And I think what linked us is some of the things that are similar to the way that Tommy described Gerald Hines 
Bob and I both grew up in the Hudson River Valley. Bob mm-hmm. grew up on an apple farm, apple orchard in Red Hook in the Hudson River Valley. And I grew up further up in the Hudson River Valley. And there was a simplicity and honesty to the way people communicated there. We would openly talk about wisdom sayings like, it's hard to coast uphill. Even a broken <laughs> clock is right twice a day. Um, you, you, the harder you work, the luckier you get. These kind Measure of Measure twice, ethic. cut once. Yeah, that, that one too. Uh, and so there was this uh, linkage about a way of thinking about the world and working hard and a kind of moral and ethical basis to the work. Mm-hmm. And then also a connection to nature. Um, both of us had to live where we can see water, this idea that mm-hmm. you wanted to be in a safe place and prospect out into the world. This is something we call the Savannah hypothesis under biophilic design. So this idea that you were you felt better when you walked in the woods, mm. that you connected to nature in an ideal uh, living environment. So these things these things bound us. But I think some of the similar things with uh, with. Gerald Hines. Bob really cared about people and mentoring other people. It wasn't all about him. And uh, it made him a wonderful mentor and set the the path for how Cook Fox would be set up. And so both of your firms are very large and very, very growing. And Tommy, you've used the term junior varsity and varsity team to describe the younger and the older staff at your company in a very collegial way. And essentially, these are people uh, from the junior varsity team that could take your position down the road. Uh, Tommy, how do you think then about choosing, mentoring, and growing younger staff at your firm in the New York office? I mean, I think Rick and I, you know, I've been exposed to his younger staff. He's been exposed to ours. Mm -hmm. I actually describe them as my co-pilots. And, (laughs) um, you know, I've been really lucky. Cycle. 12, 14 years, we've been really busy. You know, we've had like four waves of different buildings since 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and cycle, you know, I've been exposed to some really capable young people. They often join Heinz because they want to get beyond desktop real estate. You know, mm-hmm. what we typically provide is the chance to synthesize physical and financing and architecture in building. And they have a, they develop a passion for it. So for me, I know that, that giving them that exposure to the sense of being a participant, to a certain extent, they're going to stay with Heinz because Heinz gives an unusual degree of autonomy. But if you're inside the process, it's really about the people and the journey. And it's such a joy. I think you brought up a really good point, which is the uh, reality that these large, amazing buildings that Heinz works on is the result of people working together. And for me, when I spent my five years at Turner Construction, what I enjoyed so much about that time there was the people that I worked with. And I would say the actual projects have started now fading into the background, given that it's been like a good 10 years since my last project at Turner. Um, but it's particularly the the people that I'm friends with and still I'm friends with from um, that work experience uh, that I particularly enjoy. Um, so for yourself, Rick, uh, you have a number of really uh, young staff that have taken on really great leadership roles. Um, tell us about some of the folks at your firm that you're really proud of. Well, I think 
one of the interesting things about architecture is that it's a collaborative art. So the partners, somebody like myself, has an obligation to lead. That's our that's our role. But even somebody right right out of school who has a passion and is given enough responsibility and a reasonable amount of leadership can have an enormous impact. So I think every day I'm amazed by people who come in and really add something important to the collaborative process. Um, right now, the firm's bigger. We're over 100 people, and there mm-hmm. are eight other partners besides myself, many of which have kind of been homegrown, have come up through the studio. And I think that collaborative work environment really makes a difference. I, I think also similar to Heinz, one of the reasons people come here is because it's not a th- it's not pure theory. We mm-hmm. really do build buildings, and there's no substitute for learning that experience. The people who are involved in getting the buildings built, I, I say that architecture is the combination of both bricks and mortar and love and magic, and 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 part of the love and magic. I would say is composition and architecture, but part of it is how do you get things done? How do you communicate with people? Mm -hmm. How do you connect and get a large collaborative effort rolling in the right direction? That's an excellent point that you brought up. I want to move our focus to the the project, the amazing project that both of you are working on, uh, which is the uh, 555 Greenwich and 345 Hudson Street Project. So it's located in the Hudson Square neighborhood of Manhattan, which is also where my startup's office is, uh, so I know it well. Rick, uh, tell us about this area and more specifically about the site as it is. Well, Hudson Square is a fascinating neighborhood in that it's kind of the far west side of Soho in some mm-hmm. ways. It's the upper part of the financial district, the lower part of Greenwich Village, yes. and it abuts the Hudson River. So it has all of these attributes of vibrant neighborhoods immediately around it. And it itself, historically, over time, it had been a meadow and a swamp. But most recently, it was the printing district. So it's made out of these big, powerful buildings with robust superstructure and powerful gridded facades. And it just happened to also work remarkably well as the workplace of the future. Mm. Uh, And Hudson Street was really the spine. And now what we're seeing right now is the shift in focus from Hudson Street as the spine moving west towards the Hudson River, the Hudson River Park and the Hudson River. And part of that has to do with the buildings that are getting built along the waterfront, including the new Google headquarters, Oxford and Google uh, building right on the waterfront. So we're now seeing much more of a network of how all these buildings work together as a neighborhood, which makes every great neighborhood. The buildings are better all together than in isolation. And then the particular site is incredibly unique because it's two existing buildings that form an entire block. Tell us a little bit about the site, too. Well, the site, uh, if we view the entire site, there was an empty lot on Greenwich Street Mm -hmm. and an existing building from the 1930s by Benjamin Winston was the architect. Big, powerful building with beautiful turrets, gorgeous masonry facade that faced on Hudson Street and kind of turned its back on the Hudson River. Hmm. So the goal for 555 Greenwich was really to complete 345 and to face west 
out towards the water. My favorite thing to say about this is our goal was to make the whole grand the sum of the parts. So hmm. how do these two buildings make one building that's better than each one would be by themselves? And much of it is about connectivity. We're connecting 345 and 555, literally, but we're also connecting Hudson Street with the Hudson River by making this move and facing the building out to the west. So I think it's a, a very important site for Hudson Square. And I think just one more element, one more building block and making this vibrant neighborhood. Uh, help us understand, Tommy, the design prompt that you gave Cook Fox at the beginning of this entire process. Sure. So we had been working on the project for about a year before we happily engaged Rick and his colleagues. And we mm -hmm. got asked in 2018, after Trinity Church completed their transaction with Disney, we had told them at the time we were selected, the most significant thing they could do for the neighborhood was to activate their five development sites. Mm. And that would augment the value of the existing 11 buildings. And um, once the Disney transaction occurred, they realized that there was real demand, you know, to continue the transformation of the neighborhood. Really, Rick and I both know all of this change dates back almost exactly 10 years to a zoning text change that permitted residential. Carl Weisbrod led that effort with SHOP. Took about five neighborhoods, uh, uh, units right now that are under construction. So we looked at this for a year. And what's so fun about what somebody, you know, like Heinz does, or what I do, is we really did all of the feasibility analysis and we determined it was possible to do a building with an investment supposition that was consistent with what, with what Rick said. The, the three partners of the Hudson Square Venture, Trinity Church, Norges, and Hines, believed that rather than creating a new building adjacent to the existing 345 Hudson Street, that we could do something that was accretive to the value of the existing building if we could connect it. So we had worked all this out, and the two critical findings in our due diligence were that we could connect the floors one at a time, which meant that we did not have to vacate the 345 Hudson Street building. Unlike every other building that I've ever done that involved any kind of you know, conjoining of a new and an old, we're doing one Madison Avenue. We did 450 Lex. Those overbuilds require that you terminate the leases of existing tenants, achieve full possession. And that's a very big economic decision to make, to suspend all the income in an existing building, particularly for a church like Trinity. So once we learned that we could connect the floors one at a time, we then believed as Rick has said many times, that the 345 Hudson Street would benefit if we extended it that much closer to the Hudson River, which is what we do by combining it with 555 Greenwich with 345 Hudson Street. 
What Rick did, and of course I saw, we went through a competitive design process. Rick's design was faithful to what he just said. There were several other designs that really created object buildings as if the new building at 555, you know, existed separate and apart from 345 Hudson Street, had a different grid, had a different materiality. Rick completely captured the essence of what we were trying to do with his design, which is to really not only connect the two buildings, but in some ways, he's got a very sophisticated design that connects 555 Greenwich to 345 Hudson Street, but in very a very modern idiom. And we got really excited by that. But that's all Rick. All the work we had done before that was really to look at zoning diagrams, you know, confirm the feasibility of the study. You know, it was Rick's, you know, specific idea to create an architecture that was very sensitive to the context of 345 Hudson Street. The Disney transaction, that acted really as a catalyst for this. We studied the site for a year, did that actually with Gensler, had two critical findings that we could combine the buildings without combining the zoning lots, and we could connect the floors one at a time, which meant that we did not have to suspend the existing leases or terminate them, which is what we've done on all the other building combinations we've ever done in New York. Rick came up with a very specific idea, as he just said, from a design perspective, of creating at 555 a building that really completes 345 Hudson Street, brings it closer to the Hudson River, and in some ways is very sensitive to the context, you know, of not only the neighborhood, but that building. So his materiality is passing, you know, that, that really, if you looked at the other, you know, responses, they were all other, they were object buildings. Rick was actually the only one that had the design insight, you know, of really pursuing the basic idea of 555 Greenwich Street as something that completed 345 Hudson Street, but in a modern idiom. That's so fascinating, that metaphor of stitching two buildings together. Uh, so, Rick, tell us once you uh, received the direction from from Heinz and the, the ownership team, what is your process like as a design firm in responding to a design prompt? Well, in Manhattan, we almost always start with what's called the Manhattan Project, which is the documentation of what was Manhattan in 1609, the point of first European contact. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every project we work on. In this particular case, Trinity goes back that far and is really the legacy of those same Europeans, first European contact. So what was this place? Why does it look the way that it does? Why do why are the streets the way they are? What's unique about this one place? And we really fell in love with 345, 345 Hudson and mm -hmm. its massing. And for us, the goal was absolutely not to do a modern addition, an object building on the on the opposite avenue. 
but to respect the existing building and then do a new building that clearly completes 345. So you could view these as one whole from block to block and at the same time be of its time, of its place. So it it is a masonry building for the base, but the grid opens up and is lighter as you get towards the Hudson River with bigger views and bigger windows. And then it rises up, it sets back at very specific spots that relate to 345 and ultimately into a very glassy penthouse that takes advantage of the views. But at the same time, feeling comfortable, feeling like it's a completion, a modern completion of this beautiful, elegant building that was there. So for us, architecture is about having a clear idea and then executing it well. Our clear idea was not to stick an object building on the end, but to complete this beautiful building. So within your firm, do you work in a a studio format or do you have certain teams made for certain projects and then develop the, the designs with those teams? Uh, we're a classic architecture studio. Mm-hmm. We we work in a, as a design studio. Mm-hmm. So everybody has a chance to roll up their sleeves, get the ideas out on the table. And then we like to create a team who follows all the way through from the very beginning stages conceptually all the way through to what we call the construction documents, mm-hmm. the shop drawing process, what we call construction administration, which is working with the contractors. And I, and I think... 555 is one of those success stories of getting early input. We were able to accomplish things in carbon reduction and very elegant, let's call them green systems or carbon reduction Mm -hmm. systems that had to do with an excellent dialogue between the people building the building and the engineers who were thinking about the systems and the architects and the owners. Everybody collaborated to come up with a a whole that again Mm -hmm. was greater than the sum of the parts by using existing technologies, but in new and unique combinations so that we could accomplish the geothermal and the all electric building and the DOAS system. And a massive breakthrough for this building is a thermally active superstructure, the first of its kind in New York. Could you describe what you mean by a thermally active superstructure? Sure. Um, When I say thermally active superstructure, what happens when we build one of these buildings, and this particular building is what we call a concrete superstructure building, so Mm -hmm. concrete columns and concrete slabs, there's an enormous amount of mass, which we know conceptually can hold temperature. Mm -hmm. Normally, we heat the air or cool the air, and it's a lot of work, and the superstructure gets built to hold the building up, and it's along for the ride after that. And we've all known for a long time that if you could use passive techniques, if you could make that mass generally warm in the winter and generally cool in the summer, if you had a way to do that, you would take care of a massive part of the base load and get, and then you could offset the peaks with traditional air conditioning and heating systems. Mm-hmm. We've, really never been able to accomplish that. But in this particular case, because we're attaching to another building and it was so important that we lined up the floors perfectly, that we made the decision to come back and do a topping slab. So the topping slab gave us the opportunity to put a radiant system into it so we could run cool water to make the superstructure cool or warm water to make the superstructure warm and take care of that Mm -hmm. base load with then 
a thermally active superstructure. We're using that mass that's normally just sitting there, but we're using it to take care of a base heating and cooling load. I was going to say, what was interesting, I think, to all of us involved in that process, um, the people that had been through it before, we all somehow instinctively know constraints often produce the best architecture. And in this case, as Rick said, the constraint that we had is, you know, first of all, we wanted to double the base spacing of the existing column grid from roughly nominal 20 to 40 feet. That meant we had a 12-inch, you know, floor slab. And we had to come back and add a 5-inch, you know, topping slab. You never start with 17 inches of concrete, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thermal mass that Rick spoke of. And 345 Hudson Street sits on, you know, timber friction piles. We made a decision early on, given the supposition of this as being the 100-year building, that we would have caisson socketed to rock. And um, we did that to be faithful, you know, to the investment supposition of Trinity and Norges and Heinz as mm -hmm. long-term owners. But what was really interesting is that, that the project got started just as Local Law 97 was enacted. And everybody embraced the idea of how do we really you know, create something good out of the constraint of this 17-inch mass of concrete, you know, that really forms the basis of our floor slab, which is very unusual, right? And and we had a good team that really thought through all the engineering advantages, mm -hmm. you know, of distributing through water as a medium rather than air. Water just has so much more capacity to, you know, distribute energy, storage capacity than air, but it also relates to the fact that because we were lining up the slab heights, we only had 13 three. New, you know, a new building today that we would be doing might be more like 14 to 15 feet. Mm -hmm. One Vanderbilt varies from 14.6 to 16.6. So it also had the advantage if you put the tubing in the slab, eliminating all that base ductwork. And the FPTU. So as we began to look into this, you know, the constraints of the building provided the solutions, you know, that all kind of came together in a pretty holistic way. And, you know, Rick led that effort, a gentleman on our side called Mike Izzo, mm -hmm. um, who's now Heinz's chief global carbon officer, Scott Frank, John Koch at JBMB, took about a year to really validate everything. And it only gets really validated when you make trade awards and you realize that this is something you can do and you can mm -hmm. afford as well. So, Tommy, help me understand. So the ownership team included uh, Heinz, Trinity Church, and Norges Bank. So in those early discussions about the priorities for the project, this direction towards uh, sustainability in many different forms, um, were they on board or did it take some convincing and discussion? What were those internal conversations like? Um, Rick knows this. Um, Norges actually was extraordinarily helpful. Excellent. You know, what Rick will say about this is the system really has four components. It's got really a thermally activated slab. 
it's got a geothermal, which is a function of just the incremental cost of putting tubing into our caisson, mm-hmm. you know, um, shells. It's an all-electric building, and um, it's a thermally active slab. None of this by itself, none of those components are necessarily innovative. What's innovative is the way we connect them all. And, and frankly, the Nordic countries have been looking at these kind of systems and deploying them for decades. So, so Norges, you know, in particular, really pointed the way to some of the science behind some of these solutions. And so they, they were very much, you know, not passive, but active and leaders. And Trinity really supported us the whole way through. And, and I know Rick will say the same thing. We all had an investment supposition about the 100-year building. Mm-hmm. And um, once we sensed that there was, you know, an opportunity to do good and do well, I, I don't think we ever really looked back. I think there's two things there um, about the ownership side that are important. One, the ownership team decided to proceed at what at the time was a very, very uncertain time in the market, middle of COVID. Basically. So 20, 2021, I guess? Rick and I were both part of a session in August of 2020, six months after COVID, where the board of Trinity and Norges reaffirmed the decision to proceed. It was a context of incredible uncertainty. So I think that uh, spirit of long-term vision on the ownership side is really not to be underestimated. I think a short-term thinking developer might have put the project on hold at Mm -hmm. that time. But by proceeding at that time, it allowed the collaboration to come together. It allowed trades to be awarded before what ultimately became a very rapid increase in costs that came along later. So that that confidence to proceed at a very uncertain time made a big difference. The other issue that Tommy mentioned is something called Local Law 97, mm-hmm. which is uh, New York City's local law to address carbon reduction. In some ways, you could describe it as an absolute moonshot, like how are we going to put a a person on the moon uh, in the next 10 years and return them safely? Nobody knew how to do it then. And frankly, nobody really knew how we were going to get New York City uh, to the point of the aspirational goals of Local Law 97. In fact, much of the community, I would say most of the real estate community, is still mostly focused in on fighting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and saying it's too aggressive, it's going to hamper our ability to provide the right kind of, of buildings in the future. So here, Heinz and Trinity and Norges said, let's not meet the letter of the law. Let's see if we can beat it and prove that we can do carbon reductions even beyond Local Law 97. So that's a very motivating thing for a team. And I think it's not to be underestimated how much people rallied around that idea. How do we really fundamentally rethink doing a building in the area in the era of Local Law 97, rather than spend precious energy fighting it, let's invest our energies in this new building 
in seeing where we can exceed it. And we were able to, in part by the large cooperative effort. And one of the amazing uh, home runs is that through that effort and talking about uh, we're talking about operational carbon now when we're talking about the reduction. But another issue that we haven't spent as much time talking about in New York, and we will much more, is embodied carbon. So mm-hmm. reusing an existing building, making an existing building a workplace of the future is a radical carbon change compared to building a new building. So once we got there into embodied carbon, uh, Mike Izzo and the team from Heinz Mm -hmm. uh, really put together a plan for reducing the carbon at 345 as an existing building. And uh, they were just recently awarded the Empire State uh, Challenge Grant. Here, let me do that one again. Tommy, what's the right name of the Empire State Building Challenge? Empire State Building Challenge Grant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So they were awarded the Empire State Building Challenge Grant to mm-hmm. attack the carbon on the 345 and replace all the systems there. And we're working yes. on that right now. So so one thing has an impact on the next. Um, and it really was leadership from ownership. You know, the very first idea was that 555 Greenwich would really be the culminating activity of our venture. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first stage of formation, if you talk to really all the people that are involved at Norges and at Heinz, they realize that this really fulfills the original mission, that Heinz and Norges weren't just coming in to acquire real estate, but we were really coming in to create a platform, Mm -hmm. you know, to activate that real estate create a superior tenant experience. Now, why do I say all that? Because I think Rick's on a really good point. You know, when you do one good thing, you just start down this path that, that it's a riff. It can lead to other things. So, so one of the things that's happening at 555 Greenwich, just think about this. Instead of circulating forced air and return air in a post-COVID environment, uh, right? Yes. Imagine the traditional system. Yeah, right. Bingo. There, there you go. We're creating ambient air temperatures, not by circulating return air that you breathe or I breathe, but by really circulating water and, frankly, changing the surface temperature of the slab above and the slab below. That's a completely different way. You know, so not only are we all electric and we got a thermally activated slab, but we're not relying on a forced air system. The second really big idea that Rick mentioned that really is more operative in other parts of the world. We're doing a project in London. It's all about embodied carbon. Mm-hmm. That's not the focus in New York. Think about what we're doing by joining 555 to 345 Hudson Street. We're giving a 100-year-old building a useful life for the next 100 years. And, and we're imparting value to it not only by connecting it to 555 Greenwich, but by all the work Rick and other people are doing to that building. That's another case of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. And particularly in a post-COVID environment, not all the commodity mm-hmm. buildings in New York are going to survive this correction. I assure you of that. 100%. I've been around long enough. Only the buildings that are prepared 
I think you bring up an excellent point, Tommy, particularly because of the 40-year tenure that you've had at Heinz. It's the the COVID economic uh, turmoil, the global financial crisis, the, the dot-com bubble. Then I'm guessing there was something in the 90s. Then the 80s, it was... Uh, there was the oil and gas crisis in the late 80s, I think early 70s. Uh, so there's quite a, quite a number of things. I might have missed one or two crises on the way, but I can definitely appreciate that the, the turmoil and the change that ensues. This, you know, I say this is a bit of an 80-20 rule, about 20% parted to this. You know, I'm not quite sure with 500 million square feet of office space. You yeah. know, we don't know what the new equilibrium is going to be. Um, but what we do know in a post-COVID environment already, it's interesting. We know a few things. New York continues to be a destination for young people. And companies will continue to come to New York mm-hmm. to find that human capital. But we also know that, you know, frankly, the hybrid model is probably here to stay. And if you can't offer something in the physical mm-hmm. environment better than what you can accomplish at home, particularly in New York, given the length of our commutes, you can't really create the culture in the office that's such a vital part of any company's culture, whether it's for mentoring, whether it's for competitive success, training. That's why we believe so deeply and with conviction about what, you know, is being created at this asset. This is really uh, what this conversation remind me, reminds me of is the one that I had on the show with Marianne Gilmartin uh, about six months ago. And she talked about, uh, in terms of the way that you talked about the, f- the forthright and forward thinking of your investment partners, uh, for her was uh, her discussion in 20, the summer of 2020 with uh, Safanad about the uh, decision to continue on their uh, major residential project on West 28th Street. And I think for her, she also recalled the uh, her vast experience at at Four City, and in terms of her outlook for office as well, uh, changes afoot. That's that's definitely for sure. So, uh, Tommy, help our listeners understand the project by the numbers. So, what are the total number of floors, the sure. square footage? Another way, you know, the the normal ways that developers talk about a building. So, five 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 Greenwich Street is. Roughly 270,000 square feet. 345 Mm -hmm. Hudson Street is a little more. It's 930,000 square feet. So the combined buildings are 1.2 million square feet. We will be able to connect, you know, from floors 4 through 16 across from 345 Hudson Street to 555 Greenwich Street. In the fullness of time, Mm -hmm. what Rick and I and the team describe as the Rosetta Stone is really the strategy given the existing tenants at 345. It really represents Mm -hmm. what floors we can connect day one versus in the future. What makes this project so unusual is we're not leasing 555 Greenwich Street the way every other building in New York City that I've ever done is leased which is from the bottom to the top, right? There's a vertical paradigm. Here, the paradigm is horizontal, and there's a multiplicity of ways tenants can achieve their occupancy footprint in the combined building. For instance, they can 
mm-hmm. by all of 555 Greenwich is a boutique office building. They can connect across the upper floors. Um, 16 and 17 and the overbuild Rick is doing at 345 Hudson Street on the 18th floor and really just have floors at the very top of both buildings. And so this is a really Mm -hmm. unusual, you know, um, occupancy opportunity. And so I would say by the numbers, the numbers today are we have Google at over 300,000 square feet in the existing building. We're looking really for a second major tenant of about the same Mm -hmm. size that occupy either laterally, horizontally, or vertically. Project will have floors available for tenant construction in October of this year. And when you want to kind of think about the value of the asset on a combined basis, you're talking about roughly $1.5 billion of real estate. I hope all of that helps when you think about metrics. Absolutely. And you, you know, and it's very interesting. Here we are, I know as Heinz, I feel like we've gone from, you know, projects that were one of a time, you know, one at a time projects, Seven Bryant Park, 31 West, the Lipstick Building. You know, it seems like what we've been doing lately are more super scale projects. One Madison Avenue, one Vanderbilt, the Trinity mm-hmm. portfolio. That's almost $10 billion of real estate right there. What I think is happening is, you know, at a testing moment like the one we're in now, the thing that matters most isn't really just location, you know, but do you really have sponsorship, you know, that can work with users you know, in a way that reflects the agility needed to accomplish their needs at a moment when they have a little bit of uncertainty about the relationship between jobs and space. I'd like to think mm-hmm. our partner Trinity is very adept at that. And if you combine it with expertise like that of Rick's, I think it gives you a chance to win in an environment where there be more losers than winners. That's an excellent, excellent point, Tommy. I am going to pause here to let our listeners know about the sponsors of the American Building Podcast. Redist is a technology-enabled company intelligently connecting real estate developers with the $100 billion of public financing given out every year in the U.S., The company collects, curates, and leverages data, combining it with the expertise of its in-house team of real estate industry veterans. We recently were selected by the New York City Economic Development Corporation for its founder fellowship. Through this relationship, Redist will deepen its value proposition for the small to medium-sized developers that it serves in New York and beyond. Find out more at redist.us. Michael Graves Architecture and Design is a full-service architecture firm based in New Jersey. Founded by iconic architect Michael Graves, uh, it has grown to do work across regions, across asset classes, and across project sizes. That includes everything from the handsome watch I'm wearing right now to David Burke's uh, newest restaurant to the Luttrell, a stunning boutique hotel in Charleston, South Carolina. Learn more about the firm and how it can design at any scale at michaelgraves.com. 
So, Tommy, the history of Heinz stretches back to 1957. And that was before the 1970s when oil price volatility spurred a significant amount of research and development activity related to energy efficiency and renewable energy sources. Um, Help our listeners understand what were some of the earliest ways and the earliest projects that Heinz experimented with greener ways of building. Well, I want to be clear. Um, I joined Heinz in 1982. And it is interesting, you know. (laughs) So a little bit after all of that. (laughs) I joined the firm. A lot of the energy management was about computer-based energy modeling and, and frankly, various Mm -hmm. coatings on glass. Rick will remember 30 on West 52nd Street. And um, I I did a project with Swiss Bank in Stanford. And those buildings really achieved energy efficiency by trying to minimize solar heat gain. You know, it led to a specific kind of architecture. I don't want to, it was at the time, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, considered, you know, Heinz had a mindfulness about all of this. And so I think we have evolved, you know, and I've, you know, like Rick, you know, at 550 Washington, we've looked at thermal wall construction in New York. We did that for one of our projects, a residential project. We're using triple plane gas, uh, glass at MoMA. So we've looked at lots of different systems, but, you know, we've never really had an architect Mm -hmm. and an engineer and sponsorship you know, in a way that allowed us to push the envelope, you know, as we've done here. And it's interesting, you know, we've chosen Rick for another project, a residential project, you know, on the Hudson River. And I think we both know all of this is case by case. You know, you get one chance at each of these buildings and you get the chance through the, frankly, you know, role of your personality, perhaps your expertise to try to make a difference. And um, we're living through a transition that I have no doubt on the other side of this, you know, our buildings are going to be significantly, you know, more mindful about not wasting so much energy that they are today. But it takes time. You know, the building industry is not known you know, has not been known Mm -hmm. to be at the leading edge of technology. Uh, We're at a moment that may change all. And it's going to be, you know, people like Rick, engineers like JBMB, you know, hopefully firms like Heinz that have it in their DNA to do that. Heinz is really committed, you know, as an entity and an enterprise to a statement, you know, that involves commitments for the reduction of both operational carbon and embodied carbon. I think that's uh, those are excellent points and a really interesting perspective uh, that you bring, Tommy. And I think what I find really exciting about the rapid growth of venture capital investment in our industry, which is the largest industry in the United States, the largest contributor to the GDP, and the largest employer in the United States, is this uh, shift towards venture money into design and construction, that part of our industry, and into financing that part of our industry. When I think part one was about 
co-living and co-sharing and shared economy, which I think was all the low-hanging fruit of innovation. Now we're talking the real meat and potatoes, which I think is going to help drive home a lot of the uh, the changes that you've been talking about in the in the context of uh, this project. So, Rick, between lead, USGBC, ESG, well, the progression of green building in America can be traced through a series of acronyms. Help our listeners to take a step back from all of that and understand um, what is the the purpose of green building in your mind and your firm's perspective. Okay. Well, I think we all started out talking about climate change, um, extreme weather, Mm -hmm. carbon loading, human-induced carbon, and everything originally was about carbon reduction and therefore energy reduction. That's how the entire green building movement started. More insulation, higher performing glass, as Tommy talked about. How do we reduce the energy consumption and therefore the carbon output? Mm -hmm. That's how we started. What I say often is that while doing that, we stumbled into the fact that while we're trying to make buildings better for the planet, We figured out how to make buildings better for people, quantifiably better for people. And some of them cost a little bit more energy. So we started to look into uh, filtered fresh air, for example, and the impact that has on human health and productivity. Access to daylight. Uh, The Europeans really led on this. It was surprising for, for the Americans to kind of stumble into the quality of the workplace and human health and wellness. And that brought us right into productivity, human productivity. And the pay dirt is recruitment and retention of talent. It started to define the quality of the workplace. You could say that this is quantifiably better. So how do we do that? People always want to sell you things. And there's a a lot of talk about greenwashing, but Mm -hmm. far and away, the U.S. Green Building Council's lead rating system, leadership and energy and environmental design, lead, (laughs) L-E-E-D, was far and away the clearinghouse, the best source. It was actually generated by hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours, not a trade organization, volunteer hours in the green building movement. So LEED became really important. And it also started out about energy, but we did touch on human health and wellness. As that happened, we found that People were very interested in how you can make buildings better for people also. And that became the International Well Building Institute mm-hmm. constructed something called the Well Standard. So the, the space I'm in right now is both lead platinum and well platinum. And beyond that, we started talking about things like connecting with nature and being in sync with the systems of nature. And we started talking about living building challenge as another as another uh, place, something that would balance its water and its energy, connect with nature, incorporate principles of biophilic design. And so we started to talk about how do buildings mimic nature, a field of thought called biomimicry. And how do we connect people with nature, Uh, a field of design that we call biophilia, biophilic design, love of living systems, and how do we work in sync? 
And then when we're done with all of that, everything we're working on, we've come full circle now to really focusing on, on carbon and mm. climate change and extreme weather. And it's not so much about the money or even the weather, but the critical components of human equity on earth. The first world has been the glutton at the family Thanksgiving table. The first world consumes seven times the global average of resources and produces seven times the CO2 and seven times the waste as our global brothers and sisters on average. So how do you create a better standard? And extreme weather is going to, other than you know places like the Hamptons where the rich live on the coast, the poor live in low-lying areas, typically globally. So our most economically challenged brothers and sisters all around the planet are the ones who are going to be the most dramatically impacted by extreme weather and sea level rise. So we've now come around to this carbon issue with much more richness to it about human beings, what we call good, how we define quality. And part of how we, we define quality is now coming around to the investment community that you mentioned. And when I started in this world, the number one question that we got asked, how much more is all this green mm -hmm. stuff going to cost us? And how do we? Get, how am I going to get my money back? I don't even pay for the energy. I pass that on to the tenants. Why would I care? That was the first set of questions. Mm -hmm. Now, the equity investors come to the table and say, tell us about how this is going to help us accomplish our ESG goals. And um, thank you for asking. And that's really opened it up. As you mentioned earlier, Adif, the financing instruments in real estate are something that architects often don't think that much about. You yes. know, we think about our, our own art, but it's all funded somehow. Mm -hmm. And now we have the ally of in the investment community who are asking, how is this work helping us accomplish our ESG goals? And that's environment and social governance. And so now we're back to equity, equity in the, in, in the workplace, equity investing and environmental sustainability all coming together. So I think all of these acronyms mm -hmm. have come around to a really important one, which is ESG in the investment community. I think that the, the way that you're able to describe all of those very current, very critical issues that are in the public forum is so, so interesting because it's very much in sync with a conversation I had recently with Henry Cisneros, who was the uh, U.S. HUD secretary under Bill Clinton. And he had mentioned that it's not about the volume of money that you throw at the solution. It's actually being able to structure uh, pathways for that money to be used effectively and for good reason. So we were talking in the context of uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the, the reconciliation budget, which will likely get passed after this November elections, um, both have a significant amount of money uh, around uh, energy efficiency in uh, infrastructure and then around uh, housing in the case of budget reconciliation. The ability to actually execute that money and put it in the right hands and the right places to accomplish these goals is going to be uh, really critical as a second part of that, of that, that solution, that issue. So, Tommy, question for you is, uh, we were just talking about the evolution of, of the terms and the, the way that that conversation happened around energy efficiency. So help us understand in the boardroom at Heinz, 
what do people talk about? Because I think I have a feeling old school, what it was is how, the way that Rick just described, uh, how much more money do I have to pay? And am I going to get any more rent? What are the ways that the conversations happen around our energy efficiency in the Heinz boardroom? You know, Heinz is going through a really big transition. We're going to a third generation of leadership. You know, for a company that's always been focused on quality, you know, there's now also a focus on scale. We've got about 5,000 people. To put this in perspective, I joined the firm. There were 300 people. We were sole proprietorship. We're raising about three times the amount of capital we did just three years ago, right? And, and the family, thankfully, is still committed to being a private company, which is really important because many of us believe that the nature of real estate development and investing does not lend itself to a public format. Real estate is hardly a business that can be captured with quarterly earning you know, projections. Although many of our partners and other clients, you know, are in a public format and they've done quite well with it. But I think for our culture, you know, long-term thinking lends itself to a private format. A lot of our young people, I think, are really interested to take advantage of the sector diversification that has occurred within our firm. And by that, I mean... We're active in every form of living. We're doing a for-sale condominium project with Rick on the Hudson River. We've got two multifamily buildings that are both being completed this year, our first two in the New York office, two senior living projects in New York City. We're starting our first industrial building in Northeast Pennsylvania. It's about 3 million square feet. It's a big project. It's a $250 million project. So what excites them is about doing work in our firm that is matched to the new economy, whether it's on the supply side and logistics, whether it's, you know, last mile distribution, bulk distribution, or the transition in different living. You know, we're engineering new living formats in our suburbs. But, but, but I think what Rick's doing in Sleepy Hollow, New York with us on this incredible waterfront parcel. It's important. It's part of a master plan. It's near transit. It's mm -hmm. on the river. It's got open space. It's a new lifestyle opportunity for people that want something different and better than a single family home. Whether they're coming from Brooklyn or selling their home in New Jersey. I think our young people are really excited to mm -hmm. think about real estate solutions for the new economy. You know, we're now talking to a major medical service provider, you know, for one of our buildings that would actually provide as amenity, as an amenity for tenants in the building, you know, the kind of health care that you normally have to travel for. How great would that be? Right? Think about that. You know, mm. in the building you know, every type of a full-service healthcare offering. So instead of being in a central location, you know, it's really coming to where the users are. I think that kind of stuff really excites our younger people. And I know they're going to be really great at it. So, so, so Heinz, at this moment in time, is really focused on making sure 
and we've been at this for about 10, 12 years now, that, that we're building the kind of real estate that's appropriate to the moment. And it may not necessarily be, there will be as many 555 Greenwich buildings, mm -hmm. probably. That's what makes it so special, by the way. You know, I, I read this morning about the commitment by New York State to all the new buildings at Penn Station and how likely it is those buildings will be. That's a pretty debatable proposition, mm -hmm. right? When you have 20 percent vacant. That's a major project, I understand, being undertaken by Vornado and uh, several other developers in the vicinity of Penn Station. And that that is a, a really interesting sweep of past and then looking forward in terms of the corporate perspective. And in terms of innovation, in past interviews, Rick, you've said uh, that you might as well look at the past hundreds of thousands, millions of years of evolution to see problems as they are identified and solved and not imagine that every problem that we have today can be solved in the next three days. So given the urgency of many of these uh, issues that uh, yourself and Tommy have talked about in this interview. How do you see then the the way to evolve how how we're building to go faster and faster and faster? Hmm. Well, I think quality transcends the issue of speed. Hmm. It's a personal belief. I, I was trained at in, for part of my education in Florence, Italy, and uh, I hadn't been back. Uh, with my wife in 40 years. And I just went back and realized the constants of quality, mm -hmm. the sun, elevation change, spatial definition. These are things that are really constants that make for great places to be. So I think in our, in our quest for speed, there are things that are true about us as human beings. We require certain conditions for us to feel comfortable. And I think that we need to never forget those. On the other hand, nature has been making ceramics on the bottom of the ocean at sea level temperature, super high quality ceramics from available uh, proteins. Mm -hmm. And we use massive heat and energy to do the exact same thing. So I also think that as we look to our technological breakthroughs, evolution, as, as they say, for 3.8 billion years, 3.8 billion years of evolution have taught us how to do a lot of things. So I think looking back to solve, to find ways to solve the pro significant problems that we face in the future is still out there. I, th I do think that um, there are some things about technology that will make life more equitable. The fact that we now all walk around with all knowledge in our in our in our hand. Mm -hmm. It has been a major breakthrough in my, in my life. I used to be one of those people who love to remember facts and things. And now anybody can check me <laughs> while, while <laughs> sitting in the room and, and, and check this also allows, uh, allows us a certain degree of, of equity in our workplace. Even, even the COVID world where people were all the same size across the bottom of a screen added a certain amount of equity into the workplace. I, uh, we're doing a project with Heinz and Minneapolis and uh, Steve was just a little one by two inch square, the same size as everybody else. But when you walk into a conference room with a guy named Steve Lippman, he's like six foot seven. 
and and we had we had actually designed a project with them and you know that commanding presence in a room where even the the youngest junior person was the same size square Mm -hmm. on the grid so i do think that technology is helping us advance something that's been very important and very lagging which is equity in the workplace uh that it's a much more open and inclusive environment. And I believe that technologies has have been doing that. And I believe that we can continue to fine tune. There's absolutely no reason now that on your way into work, that building doesn't know you're coming. Mm-hmm. Turn your temperature up to the way that you like it, get your computer open. These technologies exist. It's really about uptake of the technology right now. It's easier to buy a new iPhone than it is to buy a new building. So thanks uh, so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, both Tommy and Rick. God, if I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Uh, Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Rick and Tommy on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Tommy, Rick, and I have made donations to Design for Freedom by Grace Farms which is working to eradicate forced labor in the modern building materials supply chain. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.